Southwestern family of companies welcomes you to the Action Catalyst. Each week, our diversely and amazingly accomplished guests share their insights and inspirations to help us ignite our own. So let's invest attention together to breathe, to reflect and refocus, and decisively defeat that voice we call Mr. Mediocrity. Then let's enjoy moving forward to make a positive difference in our world. We are excited to introduce you to our guest today, Nir Eyal. An author, speaker, and thought leader, Nir writes, consults, and teaches about the intersection of psychology, technology, and business. The MIT Technology Review dubbed Nir the prophet of habit-forming technology. Nir founded two tech companies since 2003 and has taught at the Stanford Graduate School of Business, where he also attended. He is the author of the best-selling book, Hooked. How to Build Habit-Forming Products, and his newest book, Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. In addition to blogging at nearandfar.com, that's N-I-R-N-F-A-R.com, Nier's writing has been featured in the Harvard Business Review, TechCrunch, and Psychology Today. He is also an active investor in habit-forming technologies. Enjoy this episode. Here's your host, Dan Moore. Well, this is Dan Moore, and welcome to the Action Catalyst. We are very excited today to have Mr. Nir Eyal with us. Nir is an author, he's a lecturer, successful entrepreneur, successful investor, and he's got some insights to share with us that will make a huge difference to each and every one of us. So I want to just welcome him first of all. Nir, welcome to the Action Catalyst. Thanks so much, Dan. Great to be here. Well, you are a speaker, you're a seminar leader, you're a contributor to many of the most important business journals, you're a published writer, you're a teacher. And you did all that before the age of two, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> could 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 you share with us some of the uh, some of the major pivot points or the or the influences that sort of got you from there to here? Sure, sure. So let's see. So uh, I started my career in management consulting. I worked at BCG for a few years, and then started my own business. I started an a solar energy company, and then uh, sold that a few years later. Went to business school out at Stanford. Uh, started another company at the intersection of gaming and advertising. Uh, learned a great deal about how companies change human behavior using consumer psychology. And uh, then that company was acquired and I had some time on my hands and wanted to understand the psychology of how we could use products and services, specifically these these new products at the time that, that we called apps <laughs> on mm-hmm. our phones. Apps back then when I got started didn't mean apps on the phone because apps uh, on the phone didn't exist. The Apple uh, App Store launched in 2008, and we started this company in 2007. But I was at a, I was at the the a really a front row seat to the development of of companies like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and WhatsApp and Slack. And I had this fascination with how these companies are so good at changing human behavior. And what I wanted to do was to kind of get an inside perspective. Uh, and I had that front row seat from my last company in order to democratize those techniques. Uh, and so that's why I started working on. Uh, what would become hooked. Originally, I just started a blog about this topic. And then that turned into a class that I taught at Stanford for many years at the business school, and then later at the design school. And it was in that process that uh, this this methodology that I call the hook model, this four-part model that explains how to build habit-forming products was was formed. And the idea was to to use those techniques for good. Uh, You know, the social networks and the gaming companies have known these methods for years and years. And my idea was, you know, why can't we build all kinds of healthy habits education habits, financial, uh, financial saving habits, uh, health habits, exercise habits, uh, using the same methodology. And that's exactly what's happened in the past five years since Hook was published. 
Uh, and then soon after Hooked was published, I realized that uh, the, the tide was turning in a way that I, at the time, had to convince people that uh, these products and services were designed with your psychology in mind. Uh, that was something I had to convince people of back in 2014. Well, today I have to convince no one of that. We all have seen how, uh, how persuasive these technologies are when it comes to our iPhones and social media and YouTube. I mean, uh, th these devices do persuade us to do things uh, sometimes that we want to do and sometimes things that we later regret. And so that's when I started working on Indistractable because I found that in my own life, uh, I wasn't staying on task. I was doing things that I would later regret. I would spend time with my daughter. And instead of being fully present with her, I was on my phone. I would sit down at my desk and say, okay, now I'm definitely going to work on that big project that I've been delaying. And I'd find that I'd check email for 30 minutes instead of doing the thing that I knew I wanted to do. Uh, and, and so I figured out, you know, I, I have to do something about this. If I'm suffering from this, and I know as an industry insider how these technologies are built, and I'm sure other people are struggling with it as well. And, uh, and that's certainly been the case. Uh, and so that's really why I, I wrote Indistractable, so that we can get control over this, this problem that I think a lot of us have. Uh, and what I discovered in the process is that the, the answer wasn't quite so simple. You know, I, I thought the technology was the problem, but it turns out that distraction is really the problem. All distraction. And distraction is nothing new. Socrates and Aristotle talked about it 2,500 years ago. They called it akrasia the tendency to do things against our better interest. And, uh, you know, the, the fact that it's not a new problem uh, helped help, help me understand that there's something deeper here that we have to get to if we are to put distraction in its place. Mm -hmm. Well, you, you write on the intersection of psychology, technology, and business. So this is very much in the sweet spot there for what you're talking about. Absolutely. I find that interesting when you say it's not the devices that are at fault uh, because there's a lot of literature that says, the screen time is the problem. The ease of use is the problem. The alerts and the notifications and the always on, these are the issues. But you really, the subtitle of your book is learn how to control your attention mm -hmm. and choose your life, which right. puts it back in the hands of the user. Right, right. And there are certainly people out there who deserve special protection. You know, I think children, clearly, you know, there's lots of things in society that we don't let children do. I wouldn't let my 11-year-old walk into a bar and order a gin and tonic. I wouldn't let her saunter up to a, a poker table and start you know, spending money on, on gambling because she's not ready for that. And uh, so clearly children deserve certain protections online and offline. And I think the second category of people that deserve protection are people who are pathologically addicted. Uh, and and that's, there's a real distinction there because I think we like to throw around this term that we are all somehow addicted, that technology is addicting all of us. And I think that's a very dangerous uh, turn of phrase because of two reasons. One, I think it's, it uh, minimizes the, the pathology that is a very serious condition for people who are suffering from addiction. Those are the people who actually do deserve our protection and, and our help. And second, I think it, takes, it, it lets the rest of us off the hook, meaning that uh, when you call something addictive, and the reason people love using this term is because addiction denotes a, uh, a pusher, a dealer, mind control, and that's not what's, what's going on for the vast majority of people who use these technologies. If anything, it's overuse. But look at what happened when I changed the term from addiction to overuse. Addiction is being done to me, right? That's something that I can't control. But overuse, oh, wait a minute. That's something that I can do something about. So it's, you know, what I'm for is not for tech, anti-tech. What I'm for is nuance. And the nuance here is that if you are actually pathologically addicted, 
that's something that you're going to need some help uh, with and something I think technology companies have a responsibility to assist with. However, for the vast majority of us, we're talking 95 to 99% of the population that doesn't have any kind of pathology, uh, then it is a personal responsibility issue. And I think we have to, to tell people this because it turns out when we preach this falsehood that we're all addicted, that the, that the, the source of the problem is the technology when it's not, we are teaching people learned helplessness. Because people say to themselves, well, there's nothing I can do. It's addictive. My kids are doing these weird behaviors because of the tech companies. The algorithms are doing it to their brains. And that is just not true. Clearly, the tech plays a role. It's what's called a proximal cause, but it's not the root cause. I mean, do we really think, honestly, if Mark Zuckerberg turned off Facebook tomorrow, that people would no longer become distracted? Of course not. You think people would start reading Shakespeare and Chaucer in their spare time? Clearly not. (laughs) People have been distracted for all time. And uh, they would go back to doing what they've always done to distract themselves, gossip and the news and soap operas and all kinds of other stuff that can serve as a distraction. But I will say that even though distraction is not a new phenomenon, it is easier than ever to get distracted. So the fact that we're carrying around these devices with us at all times means that if it's distraction you seek, then distraction you will find. But the solution isn't to go back to the days before these technologies. They're wonderful. We can use them to do so much good in the world. The idea is how do we use them in a way that we can get the best from these tools without letting them get the best of us. Mm-hmm. And, and I have to agree with a personal aside. Uh, when I was a freshman at Harvard, my favorite way to get distracted was to read The Facebook, which was a hardcover book with all the freshman pictures. That's right. And their hometowns and all the rest of that. So The Facebook was distracting even before <laughs> Zuckerberg was out of uh, diapers. <laughs> That's exactly right. That's exactly right. It is, it is, I mean, you know, so you, you think back 2,500 years ago, uh, Socrates and Aristotle were talking about, boy, isn't the world a distracting place these days? You know, why can't we go to the good old days before the written word? <laughs> <laughs> Very true. So how does, how does one decide or, or distinguish between overuse and whether they are tending into this addiction? Even though you say it's a very small percentage of people, uh, you're kind of swimming upstream against popular thought, which is so many people are now addicted to their phones. Yeah. How do we yeah. break that uh, that perception. Yeah. 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 So, so we have to free ourselves from, from these self-limiting beliefs that just aren't so. Uh, an addiction is a pathology. And it, th- this term addiction gets thrown around so much. I mean, my, my wife ordered a pair of shoes from the shoe company DSW. And the, the box came, it said on the side of the box, warning, addictive contents inside. It was shoes that were inside. <laughs> and we use it. I mean, it's ridiculous. We wouldn't say, oh my gosh, those shoes cause schizophrenia. <laughs> right? Like right, right. Addiction, the fact is addiction is never just about the product. No one steps on a heroin needle and becomes addicted. That's not how it works, right? Addiction is always a confluence of three factors, the product, the person, and their pain. There's always those three things. And so that's what causes this pathology of addiction. It's never just the product. I mean, obviously look around. Uh, alcohol is highly addictive, but clearly not everyone who drinks is an alcoholic. Not everyone who has sex is a sex addict. Not everyone who has gambled is, has a, is a problem gambler. Uh, so it's ridiculous to say that these products are addicting everyone. It's just not true. Uh, and in fact, preaching that it is true is making the problem worse. You are, you are catering to the interests of these big tech companies when you tell people and tell yourself and your kids that, oh my God, these things are addictive and they're so dangerous. No, they can be used for good if we know how to use them, uh, with the exception of people who do really have 
pathology. And that's the nuance that's important, that we need to help the people who have the pathology of addiction, uh, which has a very high comorbidity with obsessive compulsive disorder and other life events, right? Because remember, it's those three things of the person, Mm -hmm. the product, and their pain. And, and so for the rest of us, I think it's time that we kind of sober up and understand what's going on. Uh, I think the metaphor I like to use is, you know, look, these products are, are teenagers, right? So Facebook was started in 2006, so it's 13 years old. And for many of us, you know, we, we, this is kind of the experience that many of us had as teenagers the first time we drank too much. You know, we drank too much. We didn't know how to hold our liquor. And we, we got a headache the next day. We got a hangover. And we woke up and we said, oh, I'm never going to drink again. And that's what's happening today with our technology. We say, oh my God, we're overusing it so much. I don't want it anymore. Let's ban these companies. Let's legislate them. And I, I, don't, I don't know if that's the answer. You know, alcohol is a, can be a wonderful thing if it's used responsibly and in moderation. And I think it's the same thing when it comes to our technology uh, and, and all distraction for that matter. It's about understanding the difference between uh, how to use these things in a way that can benefit us. Um, and, and the fact is, they're not going away. Right, like no. you wait for the regulators to do something about it, or if you wait for these companies to make their products less engaging, if you hold your breath, you're going to suffocate. It's not going to happen. And do we want them to to make their products less engaging? I mean, let, let's think about it here. Hey, Netflix, can you please stop making your shows so entertaining? I like to watch them too much. That's mm. ridiculous. We want products to be engaging, uh, and so we have no choice but to learn how to put these devices, these products. Uh, in their place. And, and the good news is it's not that hard. You know, uh, addiction is defined as a persistent compulsive dependency on a behavior or substance that harms the user. It's something that despite efforts to stop, it's very, very difficult to stop without help. Well, for the vast majority of people out there, they haven't even tried to stop. They haven't even tried to figure out how to, ways to put the technology in their place. Two thirds of Americans never change their, their smartphone settings. <laughs> right? it, takes, it takes 10 minutes to turn off notification settings and there's nothing Zuckerberg can do to turn those back on. And yet we complain endlessly about how addictive they are. Eh, I think we need a bit of a reality check. Yeah, that makes total sense. Well, one thing also is that if we say, this is the, this is the problem, then we're really saying it's external to me and I get to give up responsibility. Absolutely. Fundamental change always starts with somebody saying, I am the one responsible. Right. So we can blame it but it's not going to get the problem solved. Couldn't set it better myself. Hmm. So what are, what are some of the steps then to, to control our attention and, and choose our life? Yeah. Given the fact that we have opened our floodgates of attention toward these devices or toward other distractions instead of the job we're supposed to be doing. Right. So right. give us some insights into what's coming out in the book. Absolutely. So first, we need to realize that the problem is much bigger than just our tech tools. Uh, that if it's, you know, if it's our smartphones and Facebook today, uh, the last generation, it was television and video games. Before that, it was the radio. Before that, it was the novel. I mean, every generation has this, you know, moral panic around some kind of mind controlling uh, device or technology, uh, all the way back to the written word. This is not a new problem. And we will do what we have always done, which is two things. We adapt and we adopt. We adapt our behaviors and we adopt new technologies to fix the last generation of technology. And so what I want to help people do is with this, this idea of adopting, adapting our behavior. How can we ad- adapt our behavior in a way that, again, we can get the best of these tools without letting them get the best of us? And so to do that, we, need, we have to really start at first principles. Not only why do we get distracted, but why do we do anything? What's the seat of human motivation? And most people, if you ask them, you know, what, what drives people, what's, you know, what, what motivates people, they'll tell you some version of carrots and sticks. 
Uh, and this, this comes from Freud's pleasure principle, which says that human motivation is uh, spurred by desire to seek pleasure and avoid pain. But it turns out that neurologically speaking, that is not true. That in fact, we, that motivation is not about the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. It turns out that only one factor influences us, and that is the desire to escape discomfort. That all motivation is about the desire to escape discomfort. This is called the homeostatic response. And we know this physiologically, right? If we feel cold, we put on a jacket. If we feel hot, we take it off. If we feel hunger pangs, that doesn't feel good. We eat. And when we're stuffed, ugh, that's uncomfortable. We stop eating. And the same rule applies to our psychological sensations. So when we are lonely, we check Facebook. When we're uncertain, we Google. When we're bored, we look at ESPN or stock prices or Pinterest or Reddit, lots of solutions to ease that un uncomfortable sensation of boredom. And even the pursuit of something pleasurable is psychologically destabilizing, right? So uh, seeking pleasure, wanting, craving, desire. There's a reason we say love hurts because in fact, neurologically, that's what's going on. So what this means, if all human motivation is spurred by a desire to escape discomfort, that means that time management is pain management. And every life hack and guru's techniques out there to get more time out of your day is not going to work unless we come down to this fundamental truth that if we don't manage these internal triggers, these uncomfortable sensations inside us that spur us to action, then we will always get distracted by something. So the first step to becoming indistractable is to master these internal triggers, to understand how we can either fix the source of the problem or have tactics at our disposal to cope with the discomfort that we feel. And that those internal triggers drive us either to traction or distraction. So it's important we define what we mean by, by distraction. You know, many people think the opposite of distraction is focus. It's not. The opposite of distraction is not focus. It is traction. Traction. So traction and distraction come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull. And they both end in the same five-letter word, action, A-C-T-I-O-N. So traction is any action that pulls you towards what you want to do, things that you are doing with intent. The opposite of traction is distraction, any action you take that pulls you away from what you want to do. So that means if we can master our internal triggers, we can use them to drive us to either traction or distraction. And so this is the first step. We master those internal triggers. The second step, I'll run through them quickly and then we can dive into more depth. The second step is to make time for traction. The third step is to hack back the external triggers, the external triggers as opposed to the internal triggers. The external triggers are things in our environment, the pings, dings, and rings that prompt us to either traction or distraction. And then finally, the last step is to prevent distraction with pacts. And this is about using pre-commitment devices, an ancient technique that's highly effective to keep us from getting distracted in the first place. Mm -hmm. Wow, that was a lot in a very yeah. short order there. That's the high level overview. We can dive into more depth in terms of, well, how do you do that? But that's the model. That's the strategy I want to get into people's heads. Well, Oksay, let's, let's start with the very first one, mastering those internal triggers. Do you think part of that is because many people just have a lack of clarity about what's important and therefore whatever is most present or most compelling at the moment is going to tend to pull attention. And those people don't think enough about what's my life for, what's today about, what's the intentionality. Kind of curious about root causes there. 
Yeah. So, so I think actually that falls very well into the second step, which is to make time for traction. Mastering the internal triggers are about when you feel those uncomfortable emotional states, boredom, uncertainty, fatigue, loneliness, whatever it is that you're feeling, how are you coping with it? Are you coping with it by channeling it to a productive task to, to, towards traction? Or are you using an, uh, an emotional pacification device, right? One of these emotional pacifiers, uh, like a baby sucking on a pacifier that, that makes us feel good. It makes us avoid the discomfort of having to face our feelings. That's what mastering the internal triggers is all about. But to your point, I think the second step about making time for traction is very much in line with what you just said, where you know most folks, it turns out two thirds of people in America, at least, don't keep a calendar. calendar. So what does that mean? Well, that means that if you don't know what it is you wanted to do with your time, then how do you know you got distracted, <laughs> right? So I, I had a friend of mine who actually did, was one of these folks who didn't keep a calendar. And, and you know, she would tell me about how distracted she was every day, how oh, she couldn't get anything done because of what's happening in the news. And her boss asks her for this on email and her kids want that and her husband needs this and she couldn't get anything done. And then I said, wow, that's, that's really tough. I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. Can you tell me what it is you wanted to do today? What was on your calendar that you planned to do? And she took out her phone and she opened her calendar app and it was blank. Nothing there. <laughs> There's nothing on it. So here's the rule. You cannot call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. And so what this means is that we have to plan out every minute of our day. Unfortunately, unfortunately, depends how you look at it. The, the price of progress these days, you know, we don't have to cut our own wood to keep our house warm. We don't have to kill our own food. We do have to make a schedule. Because if you don't, if you don't plan your day, someone else will. Whether it's your boss, whether it's what's going on in the news, whether it's Facebook, something is going to eat up that time if you don't decide for yourself what you want to do with it. And so it's actually not that hard. You know, people think this, oh my gosh, I can't keep every minute of my day scheduled. Well, I'm just asking you to keep a template for what you ideally want to do with your time so that you can look back at that schedule and say, ah, what's on my schedule is traction. That's the, those are things I want to do with intent. Anything that is not that is distraction. distraction. And this is incredibly important for a few reasons. One of them is that distraction tricks us. So this would happen to me all the time. I'd sit down at my desk. And I'd say, okay, I'm going to do that big project. I'm going to work on that thing that I've been delaying, uh, the thing I've been procrastinating on right after I check email, right? And then I'm checking email for 30 minutes because, oh, that, that feels worky. That feels like it's something productive to do, right? Wrong. If that's not what you plan to do with your time, it's a distraction. And that, that's the kind of, of pernicious behavior that prevents us from doing those big tasks that really move us forward in life. Mm -hmm. And so this is why it's so important to plan your day. And I use this technique called time boxing. I, I built a free tool that anyone can use. I'll give you a link for the show notes. Uh, and, and what you do basically is you, you are starting with your values. I, I call it turning your values into time. Because so many of us, myself included, I used to talk a good game. You know, if you said, oh, what's important to you in life? I would say, oh, well, my family, my friends, my health, these things are important to me. But if you looked at my calendar, where is time for those things? I would find time for them with whatever time was left over. <laughs> mm -hmm. It wasn't really important to me. And uh, not only does, it, does this carry over in terms of, of you know, your personal health and wellness uh, with your family, time with your family, with your friends, but also in the workplace, you know, so many of us, we spend all day reacting, reacting to emails, reacting to meetings, and we have almost no time for reflecting. And research has shown that this is where we do our best work, that if you think about what we as knowledge workers create, what's our... What's our output? 
right? Everybody knows what a, a, a carpenter or a baker, what their output is. What is our output as knowledge workers? It's one thing. It's creative solutions to hard problems. That's what we do. Whether it's customer service, whether it's engineering, marketing, that's what we do for a living. We come up with, with solutions to hard problems. But we can't do that unless we have time to think. So is there time on your schedule for focused work where you can spend your time actually thinking? Now, most people say, well, you know, the fact is I work after hours to do that stuff. That's when, when I have time for those things. But And if that's okay with your values, I'm not going to tell you not to do that. What we want to make sure is that we spend our time according to our values. So does that time eat up time with your friends and family? Does it eat up time that you want to, to, to go to the gym or do something else? You may want to consider whether you could make time for those, those activities during your workday. Uh, and this, by the way, incorporates uh, uh, or necessitates, I should say, a conversation with our employers. Uh, I think that you know, it's, it's naive to think that we can become indistractable on our own. You know, I can tell you these techniques to become indistractable, but if uh, you plan your day perfectly and you follow these techniques and you do what I tell you to become indistractable, but your boss insists on calling you at 9 p.m. on a Friday, got to answer the call. And so what, what I found in my research is that you know, distraction in the workplace is a symptom of cultural dysfunction. And then we can talk about that as well. That's a whole other section of the book, but that's just wanted to, to make that clear that many times it, we can't become, we can't do it all on our own. Sometimes we have to fix our workplace environment as well. But the good news is we can do that. There are techniques to do that as well. Mm -hmm. This is fascinating, Nir. Um, the whole notion that if we don't have a plan, if we don't have something to get traction with, distraction will be the default. It'll, it'll just kick right in. Absolutely. And, and the more clever people are, because I find this in myself, I think I'm pretty clever. So my creative avoidance goes to an all new levels. Uh, in those, I really got a lot done, but it was the wrong things. That's right. <laughs> and it's just as much of a distraction because you're not getting done the things that, you, you know, the big hard projects that you said to yourself, you have to work on today uh, in order to make progress in the future. You know, there's the, a lot of productivity gurus preach this uh, Eisenhower matrix, which says that mm -hmm. we should work on the things that are important and urgent, right? Uh, this two by two, I'm sure everybody's seen it a hundred times, but nobody talks about the things that are important, but not urgent. And if we don't do those things that, you know, a little bit every day, and those things are typically the harder tasks that we can delay easily by saying, oh, I'll just do something urgent, right? I'll check more email, I'll, I'll scroll more Slack channels, I'll do some more research or whatever it might be. We don't get the things done that require continual uh, progress, consistently moving the ball forward, uh, as opposed to just doing what's urgent all day. That doesn't, that doesn't help us uh, excel at our career. Right. Stephen Covey wrote about quadrant two living. And that's the whole idea of that important but not urgent and how difficult that is. It's do we want to be a fire preventer or do we want to be known as the world's greatest firefighter? Yeah. Yeah. So the advances of time are preventing fires and moving better structures into place. Absolutely. This is fascinating stuff. Near I am going to make time to be, have traction with your book. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> it should be great. When when is the release and and how can people find it? Absolutely. So the book comes out September 10th. So less than a week uh, from when we're recording this, depending on when you're watching, it might already be out. The audiobook is actually already available everywhere worldwide. Uh, and if you want more information about the book, I also have an 80 page uh, workbook that didn't fit into the book. So it, we have it separately, but that's complimentary. You can get that at indistractable.com. That's I-N, the word distract, A-B-L-E. So indistractable.com is where all that's available. Mm-hmm. Well, it's more than just strategies for doing better at work. It's strategies for, for doing better at life and understanding ourselves. 
I'm so grateful that you do this research and that you're willing to share it and put it out there. It would be terrible if you just had the only happy, undistracted life in the world. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll be honest with you. I did write this book for me uh, more than anyone. I was patient zero. I know sometimes when I talk about this, people say, oh, you must have a lot of self-control. You must, you know, this must be part of your your, your personality. Uh Uh-uh. No, (laughs) I've always struggled with distraction. And that's why I needed these techniques because the first time in my life, you know, I'm in in better shape physically than I've ever been because I exercise consistently. I spend more quality time with my daughter and my wife. And I do better work now because I needed a system in place to help me with this problem. And if other people benefit from it, well, that's icing on the cake. That's terrific. I think it's fantastic. Well, I work with uh, college students. And one of the themes I try to share with them is time itself cannot be managed. It just keeps ticking away 60 seconds a minute, 575,600 minutes a year. What we got to learn how to do is manage ourselves. And you're going to give us a whole set of new tools to do that in a great, powerful way. Absolutely. Thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. If you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to subscribe. To stay updated on everything that the Action Catalyst is up to, make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Action Catalyst Podcast and Twitter at Catalyst underscore Action. Thanks for listening.